So right on the heels of Jesus kind of unloading with both barrels on the chief priests and the elders, letting them know that they were the unrighteous son, the one who didn't obey the father, uh, and that they were they were only saying they were obedient. They were only putting on a show, not following his commands. Jesus gives another parable. And um, according to Matthew, at least according to Matthew's account, he's still in the temple courtyard. He hasn't left yet, so this is still the, the same audience we talked about last week. Jesus had come to the temple uh, the day after he had cleansed the courtyard. He'd driven out the money changers and the, the people that were selling the sacrificial animals. Um, and then he had left. And then when he came back, he cursed the fig tree that day. And then he came back to the courtyard and he was teaching and preaching in the courtyard. Uh, so we're probably still talking about that same time frame when he's sitting there teaching the people and um, ministering to their needs and, and that sort of stuff. The priests had come up and they asked him the question about his authority. Where did he get his authority from to teach and to preach like this? And Jesus said, well, if you tell me where John's authority came from, I'll tell you where my authority came from because it's the same place, right? So the priests kind of chickened out. They said, we don't know. So Jesus said, then I'm not going to tell you, but I am going to tell you a couple of parables. So he told the parable of the uh, disobedient son, that short one that we looked at last week. Then he told the parable of the tenant farmers that beat up and killed the son of the landowner. And so now he is still teaching with parables. Parables had a couple of different uses. When the disciples asked Jesus, why are you teaching parables? He said, because there are those who hear, but they're not going to listen. So there are some people who come to listen, and the only thing they want is a good story. They want something that makes them feel warm and fuzzy, right? Later on in the New Testament, we're told that there are people who don't want sound teaching. They just want something that's going to tickle their ears. Well, that's what Jesus was talking about. Somebody who came, they heard a good message, they heard a good sermon, they walked away and they said, man, didn't that make you feel great? Hey, let's go get lunch. And that's about as deep as the impact is. And then for those that are motivated by the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that's those who are saved, they were the ones who stuck around after Jesus was done with the parable and said, now what does this mean? Well, in this case, Jesus is telling the people what it means, whether they like it or not, because the chief priests and the elders did not like it. Jesus said that the prostitutes and tax collectors are going to inherit the kingdom of God before you do. I can imagine the, the, the religious elite in the temple did not appreciate that message. So here he's going to teach with another parable. And the plot to have Jesus removed, arrested at least, executed at the most, is in full development right now. They are ready to get rid of him. And so he's not going to pull any punches. Because this is the culmination of his ministry here on earth before the crucifixion. So if you would, stand with me. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 22, starting in verse 1 and ending with verse 
14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in and to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Father, as we study this word this morning, help us to understand the importance of your word. Help us to understand the importance of heeding the call that you've placed on our life. Father, we don't earn our salvation by obedience to the law. We don't earn our salvation by what we do. But Father, you command us after we are saved to do what you have called us to do as an act of obedience. As we surrender to the Spirit, help us to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. All right, real quick, this is a parable. That means it's not a real story, all right? This didn't actually happen. Jesus is not recounting something that actually occurred. Now, I'm kind of going to talk about it that way because it's the picture that we need to paint in our heads. So Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast given by a king. How many of you all have been to a royal wedding feast? Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. How many of you have been to a wedding? All right, so you've been to a wedding reception. Okay, think, think about a wedding reception in the United States, contemporary, standard, traditional American wedding reception. Normally lasts a couple hours, and it's after the wedding, right? Okay, this wedding feast would have probably spanned at least a week, maybe more, and it would have actually been before the wedding. In fact, the wedding would have taken place in the middle of it. All right, it's a good thing he was a king, because that's a lot of food and a lot of feast, right? Depending on the wealth of the families involved, the feast could last even more than a week. It could go two weeks. It could go a month. This this is a this is a this is a party. All right? And depending on the people who were invited, it wouldn't just be family members. I know a lot of the weddings that we go to today, it's just friends and close family, right? This is a king. So he's not just inviting the royal family. He's inviting the ambassadors from other countries. He's inviting the influential businessmen. He's inviting uh, neighboring rulers, kings and queens and princes. And and all this, this is... This is like the Oscars. 
stretched into a couple of weeks, but with people that are actually important. All right? Not just actors. Imagine the amount of time and coordination required to set something like this up. Okay? Just planning a regular wedding. A simple wedding. With a reception. How long does that take? Anybody? Several months. Okay? And now we're talking about inviting rulers, kings, ambassadors, politicians, military leaders, wealthy merchants. This is, this is a who's who of who's important in the region. Think about all of the money invested. For Let's keep it conservative. Let's say this is just a week-long celebration. It's probably more than that. <laughs> okay? Think about the amount of food that you would have to have for a feast. Now, everybody wouldn't show up all at once. You'd have people who were coming in and out because the businessman has to take care of business, some... Right, The rulers probably have to deal with some of the stuff in their country and come back and forth and back and forth, and, and, and it's just a perpetual motion machine. Think about the amount of food. Think about the amount of drink. Think about all of this investment into this feast. And then you have the national and international protocols. I love dealing with protocol, and that's sarcastic, by the way. As, as a, a former retired member of the military, as a person who still works on base, right? We have, we have visitors coming through our unit all the time. And the, the hoops that we have to jump through, if it's a person who is at this level, then we have to make sure there's a reserved parking space out front. If it's a person at this level, then we have to have somebody available to open the doors for them and somebody to call the building to attention. If it's a person at this level, then they have a bus that pulls up with a whole entourage of, yeah. Now we're talking about kings and queens and rulers, the protocols that had to be in place. This is not just a simple wedding. And it's definitely not just a trip to the courthouse. This is a big deal. So you kind of get the extent of the feast and the preparations. Now, it may make a little bit more sense when you read that the king sends the servants out to tell everybody who's invited, it's time for the feast. That process in and of itself probably took weeks to send the servants far and wide to tell everybody, come to the feast. We have the post office. If they're thinking about their contemporary situation, it was probably weeks just to get the message out, okay, it's time for the wedding to start. And here's the kicker. What did the guests do? They ignored it. Now, if this were to happen today with this level of protocol and this level of everything going on, these nations would be at the top ten list for whom I'm going to nuke. All right, because that's like the height of insult. So the king sends a second group of servants out with instructions to tell the guests, okay, I'm serious this time. The meat's ready, the drink's ready, 
the wedding's ready, come on over. Or, or like we put it at my house at the dinner table, soup's on. If you ain't here, you ain't eating. Right? None of us here are royalty, I don't think. Right? Anybody in here? King, queen, prince, duke, duchess, baron? No? Okay. All right. We are a royal priesthood in God's kingdom. That's a good thing. None of us rule a kingdom... But I've got to tell you that if I were doing something like this, I probably wouldn't have bothered to make a second request. All this money, all this investment, and you're going to snub me? I'm not going to bother sending another letter. I'm not going to send another batch of servants. But this king did. Because of the protocol, because of the prominence, because these weddings were more likely than not a state function where it was a treaty being signed between two countries. So this is a big deal. And he sends out the second set of, ser- of, of servants, only this time the guests didn't just not show up. They didn't just ignore the servants. We are told that they mistreated them. They paid no attention. One went off to his farm, the other went off to his business, They actively went the other way. They actively walked away from the invite to the wedding. These are businessmen, merchants, landowners. The one who went to his farm, this wasn't just Farmer Joe down the road wearing his overalls. This was probably the equivalent of a commercial plantation where he had tenants to deal with, like in the last parable. The guy who planted the vineyard and had the tenants where he had to go collect his profits. Another went to tend his business. If that's not bad enough, the rest of them were worse. They seized the servants, they beat the servants, and they killed the servants. Put yourself in the shoes of the king just for a second. What's your response? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just set aside the theological thinking for just a minute, all right? Put aside the Sunday school answer, because we'll deal with what this means theologically in a couple of minutes. Think about the human response. Look at how Jesus described it. The king was angry. (laughs) So apparently Jesus uses a lot of understatement. Paul uses a lot of exaggeration. Jesus uses understatement. The king was angry. That's a safe bet. And as a king, he responded in force. He sent his armies and destroyed the people who killed his servants. He burned their city. He declared war. Um, As a monarch, I guess you have a lot of options when it comes to retaliation. In his case, it was a scorched earth policy. Right? Nuke them. They're going to ignore my invitation, and then they're going to kill my servants? I'll show you how this works. So then the king tells the servants what few he's got left. The guest list has changed. The people we had planned on inviting were too good to show up. They were too high and mighty. They thought too much of themselves, whatever. They're off the list. Presumably he's talking about the ones who are still alive. Because 
because some of them he killed and burnt their city. So now he tells the servants, go out into the main road. Go down to Main Street. If you see a person, tell them to come to the wedding. He's not going to let all this food go to waste, right? His son's still getting married. Look at the category of people he tells them to invite. Go therefore to the main road and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. No filters. Rich, poor, upright, criminal, farmer, merchant. Invite everybody. And they all came. Who wouldn't? Think, think, regardless of what you feel about the British monarchy, who have become pretty popular in the United States lately, right? I think William and Kate's wedding was the biggest television event in recent history, and Prince Harry is due to get married. And I know there are people already who are like putting in vacation time from work so they can watch it. Okay? But now, okay, so that's, that's silly. We all chuckle, we all giggle. If the Queen of England were to send you an invitation right now, come to Prince Harry's wedding, there will be food, how many of you would turn it down? <laughs> yeah, well, they'd, yeah, they'd have to include a plane ticket to get there. Yeah, but I mean, if those arrangements were available, how many of you would say, no, nah, I'll pass? I'd go, right? Yeah, there's food. <laughs> We talked about that this morning, right? I'll leave my self-control on the plane. This is a feast hosted by a king. This is like the best food. This is not, this, this isn't McDonald's. This isn't Burger King. This isn't Wendy's. This isn't, definitely isn't Taco Bell, right? Makes my stomach hurt just thinking about it. <clears throat> this is a feast. Now, not only is the king inviting you to a feast, but can you imagine that news has already traveled about what happened to the first guest list? <laughs> right? You see what I'm saying? Wait, the last group of people the king invited to the wedding didn't show up, and he burnt their cities. I'm there. Where's my seat? I brought a fork. Right? I'm not going to say no to this king. So the wedding hall is filled with guests. And the king comes in. Here's where the parable gets a little bit tricky. Because the servants were told, go invite everybody. The king comes in and there's a man who didn't have a wedding garment. He wasn't dressed for the wedding. He wasn't prepared for the wedding. Well, it's, it's kind of easy to understand if you go back to the queen sending you an invite to come to Prince Harry's wedding along with a plane ticket, right? Especially if this is the second round of invites and let's say she invited all of France, they didn't show up 
So she nuked it. Okay? Now the queen sends an invite with a plane ticket. Are you going to go? Yes. You're probably going to dress for the occasion. I'm going to guess. You're probably going to wear, at the very least, a good set of pants and a good shirt without holes in it. Probably a suit. You may even go out of your way to get a really nice suit. Yeah, a tux would not be off off the, 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 the list. This guy, when the servants came down to the main road and they said, everybody come on up to the castle for the king's wedding feast, right? This guy went in his cut-off jeans and his wife-beater t-shirt. He just shows up. So the king wasn't belligerent, wasn't mean, wasn't demeaning even. But he says, friend, how did you get in with no wedding garment? Because the king knows that his staff is going to be watching who comes in. And if somebody's not dressed for the wedding, they're probably going to turn them away and say, look, go get, go, go bathe for Pete's sake and then come back. How did you get in? without being prepared for the wedding. I love what Jesus says his response was. He was what? Speechless. He didn't have an answer. He couldn't tell the king, or he wouldn't tell the king, how he got in. Now, I am not a detective. I, I've never been to the police academy. I have never learned any official detective police work skills. Nothing like that. I have watched enough detective shows on TV and read enough detective novels to know that if if he'd have had an answer, things probably would have gone better for him. They call that an alibi, right? If he had been admitted by the attendants at the door without the proper clothing on, he could have shuffled the guilt off to the attendants at the door. Right? If his answer had been, well, king, your servants came and said it was time for the wedding feast and I saw what happened to the other folks who didn't show up, so I just I just hightailed it up here, showed up at the door, and the, the door guard said, yeah, come on in. That's a legitimate answer, right? Who would have been in trouble? Guys at the door. But instead, he didn't have an answer. Now, you know what that tells me? That's right. He snuck in. He knew that he wasn't dressed for and prepared for attending the wedding. He snuck in the back door. Or somehow... He was duplicitous. I love that word. He was sneaky. He was underhanded. He was two-faced. He did something to get in around the requirement of being dressed for the wedding. 
Right. So without, without an answer, the king, again, without malice, without hatred, without, without yelling at the man, he turns to his guards and he says, take him out. Bind him hand and foot and throw him out of the feast. Specifically, Jesus uses these words, cast him into the outer darkness. This is where the parable gets very, very serious. The people who are listening understand that Jesus is talking about something very important. He's talking in very clear terms. First, as we think about the parable, there's the issue of the feast. The king, of course, being God the bounty of heaven as the feast, the invitation, the guest list, the original guest list, would represent the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel. After they ignored the invitation, which would be the giving of the law by Moses, right? They ignore that. Then the prophets show up and they start giving God's word and they don't just ignore it, but they turn to their business pursuits, they turn to their farms, they turn away from God's word and they beat the prophets and they kill them and they ignore God's commands for sacrifice and for Sabbath. The king retaliates, he destroys those who denied his call to come to the feast. This is a picture of the future judgment on those who rejected God. Pay close attention. Jesus is talking about the people of Israel and their wholesale rejection of God's call to obedience. He's talking about those who are relying on their heritage as the descendants of Abraham. You remember how the Pharisees responded to Jesus on one occasion? They said, we are the sons of Abraham. He said, well, you don't act like it. You act like sons of Satan. In fact, he said that God would raise sons for Abraham out of the rocks in the field. They thought that their heritage would make it impossible for God to reject them. Even though their hearts were far from the example that Abraham gave them. Remember who Jesus' audience is? The high priests, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. These are the people who think that their holiness is above reproach. They are the sons of Aaron. They are Levites. They are the teachers of the law. They are the people who know God's word backwards and forwards and left and right and upside down. 
these are the people who are the teachers of the general population. These are the guys who get the seats of prominence because of how close they must be to God's will. How could they stand condemned? Then the king tells the servants to go call in people from the hedges and highways. Who do you suppose he's talking about there? Yeah. In chapter 21, verse 32, Jesus said, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. The people that the religious elite looked down on, the sinners, the rank and file, the people who just lived their life and maybe came to the temple when it was time, the people who weren't part of those parties of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and and the family of Levi. And to an extent, Jesus was talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles too. Even the Gentiles who are faithful will receive God's mercy and grace before the religious hypocrites that he's preaching to right now. That's the easy part of the parable. Then we hit the man without the wedding garment. There's an indication there when the king comes to the man and he says, how did you get in without a wedding garment? There's an indication that that was an expected requirement for attendance. Not just the servants coming and telling you, you need to be here. But it was expected to be dressed for the event. This is quite possibly an indication of the exclusivity of God's election unto salvation. Let me put that in plain terms. I'll use Jesus' words. He says in verse 14, many are called but few are chosen. I think about this in relation to what Jesus taught in Matthew 17 because he uses very similar terminology there. In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, In that day there will be those who cry out to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we teach in your name and cast out demons in your name? And and let let me put that into more churchianity terms. Didn't we come to church when the doors were open? Didn't we sing the songs when the song leader told us to sing? Didn't we give our money in the offering? Didn't we teach Sunday school? Didn't we preach? And Jesus said, Depart from me, you evildoers, for I never knew you. And then he talks about them being cast into the outer darkness. Huh. Just like the king here says to the man without the wedding garment, to cast him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
just like the religious leaders of the Jews, this man in the parable, the people that he represents, believe that being present is enough. Just because I'm part of a congregation, just because I said the right words, just because I did the right stuff, God has to take me. He's obligated to do it. I did enough for Him, He has to accept me. That's not how this works. Jesus makes it clear. Those who call Lord, Lord, Jesus says, depart from me. Why? I never knew you. There's a relationship requirement there. We have to be in that relationship with Christ. We have to have placed our faith and our hope and our trust in His life, death, and resurrection. We have to have come to that point where He is our Savior. Not just mentally. Because anybody can mentally say, of course Jesus died for my sins. However, is He the Lord of your life? Do we seek to do what He says? Do we go where He tells us to go? Do we do what He tells us to do? Do we do the will of the Father? which is to believe on the Son. If we do, then we are those who are called and those who are chosen. Here's the cool thing about the gospel. This is, this is what makes it easy for us to go out and share the gospel with people if we take the time. Okay? You ready? This is, this is just, this will blow your mind. Sharing the gospel is the call. Jesus says, many are called. All we're required to do is to tell people. Who does the saving? God does. Who has to change their hearts? God does. Who makes them a new creature? God does. What do we have to do? Tell them. When Jesus says many are called but few are chosen, do I know who is chosen? Do I know who the people are that God has chosen from the foundations of the earth to be saved? Nope. Let me ask it a different way. Do I know those people who God has said, no, I'm not going to save? Because by extension, if he has picked some, then others he hasn't. Do I know who they are? Are we born with a barcode that I could scan with my phone to know whether I need to share the gospel with a person or not. Boy, that would make it so much easier. Which is why he didn't do it. Because he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You will be my witnesses. At the end of the book of Matthew, he says, go therefore and do what? Make disciples. 
You can't do that if you don't tell people about who Jesus is. And if they say, you know what, I'm at a point in my life right now where I'm just not sure that's for me, does that mean you failed? No, because what's God's command? Tell. See, it's easy. If we listen to what God says. If we've placed our faith in Christ, then we should seek to do God's will. That's how we enter into fellowship with God. I cannot have fellowship with God if I don't do what He tells me to do. Back to that first parable, starting in chapter 21, verse 28. The man with two sons, he went to the first and said, Go, work in the vineyard today. And the son said, No thanks. But then later on, he went. He said to the second son, Go, work in the vineyard today. And the son said, Okay but he stayed in his room all day long. We can say all day long that we're obedient to God, but if we don't get out of our seats and do what he's called us to do, it is of no value at all. If we obey, then we have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with Christ. We have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And we can have fellowship with, with one another. Why is that important? Is that important? Let's let's start there, make the easy question. Is it important that we have fellowship with one another? Yes, why? Okay, we can build each other up. Say again? God said to. Well, there's a novel idea. Yeah. <laughs> Because Jesus told us we're supposed to love one another, right? Okay. All right. How about this? The very first thing that God said was not good was what? It's not good for man to be alone. And it wasn't just because if a man was left alone, all of his clothes would be pink. This was before clothes. It's because we don't know how to run the washing machine. It's not good for us to be alone because God is a triune God. There is a perfect relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity. We're made in God's image, right? So that means that we're made to be in in relationship with other people, right? That's what the celebration of the Lord's Supper is about. Is community. Is fellowship with one another. There's, I I promise you, okay, there is nothing magical or mystical about this Manschwitz matzo cracker that's been in my freezer for a while. It's unleavened, a little stale. Bought them at Walmart? Commissary? What's up the commissary? Winn-Dixie? I don't, yeah. The store doesn't even exist anymore. There's nothing magical about them. All right? And there is nothing significant 
about Mr. Welch's pasteurized grape juice at all. This is, this is a ceremony that Jesus instituted. It is the fellowship together as a church that we recognize when we partake. It is the opportunity for us to realize that the community of the church doesn't just exist within these four walls. Because when I take this small piece of cracker, this small cup of juice, when I take these two elements, I am celebrating the same meal that James and John and Paul and Peter and Jesus celebrated. The community of the church extends beyond just here and now. So that's why Jesus commanded us to celebrate. Because it emphasizes our fellowship with Him and our fellowship with one another. 